the currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. Coming up on this evening's show, former advisor to the President of the European Commission, Philippe Legrand, reviews Europe's economic recovery since the crash, including Irish austerity, the ECB and a dire need for political renewal. Our international markets review with Owen Callan will look at escalating unrest in the Ukraine and some surprising results for low liquidity in the bond markets. But first, our panel. This week, I'm joined by lecturer of finance at DCU, Michael Dowling, and columnist and former banker, Michael Murray. You're both very welcome to the show. We'll discuss the role of the regulator, the credit union's new insurance policy. But first, let's begin by taking a look at the central bank's annual report that was released on Wednesday. Uh, it revealed a record profit of one and a half billion euro, which is uh, which was generated last year. And whilst the bank's profits are on the up, the report still outlines concerns for both Irish and European economies. Now, speaking at the report launch, Central Bank Governor Patrick uh, Honaghan placed emphasis on Ireland meeting its fiscal targets. He expressed concern over low inflation in the EU, and he also committed the bank to selling off 500 million uh, euro of bonds this year. Now, Michael Dowling, uh, we've got two Michaels in, so we're going to be using your full names. Uh, we'll begin with fiscal targets. The central bank uh, places huge importance on Ireland sticking to budget targets in order to retain market support. Um, but with these targets mirroring those of the Troikas and calls for more leniency on taxation, are we likely to stay the course, or is it going to become just too difficult to, uh, to keep to that sort of Troika-led, uh, Troika-led move? Well, it was a, a very mild comment by, uh, by Governor Hunan. Uh, he seemed to say we should stick to the target, not that we have any likelihood of missing it, or indeed that we should try to go a bit further. Uh, because the, the underground situation is, uh, last week uh, we found that tax is running quite a bit above expectations, spending is running below expectations, so we can actually stick within our targets and actually still cut tax. Now, one, uh, one small comment about uh, the profitability of the bank, uh, it does sound brilliant, 1.5 billion, but actually um, the Irish government had actually paid a billion to the central bank over the course of the year, of which the central bank is now paying back 1.2 billion. Uh, so it's it's not quite as rosy it's as, not it, as, good as no. it looks. It's not as good as it looks, definitely. But is it just a question of being expedient? I think the the uh, central bank governor Honahan said that uh, the bank's looking to sell 500 million of uh, of sovereign bonds this year. And they managed to get 350 million away last year. Is that just uh, making hay whilst the sun? Shines, do you think? Well, I think the central bank is under uh, is under pressure, obviously, from uh, from the ECB because of the promissory note deal to to, to sell bonds. It would be very foolish of them not to take uh, advantage of the current favourable market conditions uh, where bond prices are, are high. On um, the uh, uh, banking competition subject came up in uh, in the central bank report, there was a sort of reiteration of this desire to see a wider variety of banks uh, in the market um, and, and, and a sense that that's very important for the Irish recovery. Would you agree with that? And what form of foreign competition uh, would you like to see introduced into the Irish banking sector and is it possible first of all it's it's vital that we have more competition i mean the, the average the average household next year is going to spend about 260 euro in bank fees that's wow. uh, uh bank fees two banks that 
in Northern Ireland, uh, those same Irish banks offer free banking. That's a damning sign of how little competition we have here. Now, the central bank isn't, uh, isn't helping because the problem with new entrants to the market is it's very difficult to persuade customers who are being charged these ridiculous amounts of money for, for a simple bank account to actually switch. And the, the central bank sets the bank switching code. Uh, having a look at the central bank switching code versus the UK switching code, uh, you can just see the vast differences. So effectively, consumers in Ireland, when you compare them on a relative basis to the UK, if I understand what you're saying, mm. have huge barriers to actually making the switch. Yep. Uh, let me give you precise numbers of that. The UK implemented a brand new simplified bank switching system last year. Uh, in the last six months, 600,000 people have switched bank accounts. Uh, you can go on to some of the money comparison websites and look at the offers the UK banks are throwing out desperately trying to get new customers. We've got nothing like that in the Irish market. There's only one bank that actually offers free banking. Uh, so, But the central bank, uh, clearly, I mean, they might be saying this, but uh, actually they create the switching code and their switching code is incredibly vague, uh, meaning that customers are very confused about exactly how they switch banks. So how are we going to attract new banks if the central bank isn't actually helping those banks actually get new customers? It isn't creating a competitive marketplace. Just, just responding to uh, Michael Downing's comments there, if switching is such a, such a task in, in Ireland, isn't that a no-brainer? And shouldn't the central bank actually be doing something about it? And uh, one would have thought that's a, a fairly obvious way to improve competition in, in the market. Well, I agree fully with Michael that the switching code is not as robust as, or effective as it is uh, in the UK. Uh, and that is certainly a barrier uh, going forward to increase competition. But there is another aspect uh, of this which I think we have to focus on. The pillar banks in this country remain overburdened with uh, the drag of tracker mortgages. And what is critical and there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation here, but it's what is critical to get them more active in the market and to get credit flowing more freely is that they continue to build their capital bases. Now, they're only just beginning to move back into profit, and they've been doing that by widening their margins, which they'll have to do anyway because there's uh, because of the increases in capital requirements that they now have in order to get a decent return on equity. And... Uh, once they have become fit to go into a competitive boxing ring, I think that's the time to bring in more competition. But I think they need to be given some more space uh, for another year or two to, to continue to build their equity reserves uh, in, order to fund, uh, in, order, in order to fund future growth. Now, during the uh, central bank's report launch, uh, Governor Honan referred to the regulator's role in the 2008 illegal share buying scheme at Anglo-Irish bank, uh, a hot topic, and he called it a sorry story. Now, his comments followed criticism from Judge Nolan of the recently concluded Anglo trial, who said it seemed incredible that red lights didn't go off somewhere in the regulator's office during the time of the share scheme. Here is what uh, Governor Honan had to say on the issue of the regulator. This is something that, that is behind us, but, but of course the financial crisis is not behind us has had a long a long um, period of consequence so uh, uh, that's what we're, we're dealing with today but the actions that regulatory actions that, that happened in the past I think are something that we couldn't 
expect to see today. In fact, I'm sure that we would not. So, uh, Michael Murray, what should we expect to see today from the bank regulator? Well, I think the bank regulator needs to be focused on risk concentrations, uh, the development of asset bubbles, uh, systemic risk, uh, the monitoring of trends in terms of lending standards, be it in the in the mortgage area or in the in, in the SME sector or in the credit card area, right across the board. There needs to be far more intense monitoring of the trends in credit extension within the banks. Probability risk analysis, which has now been introduced by the central bank, uh, and. Um, regular monitoring and and oversight and challenge to the direction in which uh, the banks are going and the concentrations that are building in their books. And to to what extent would you say that the the regulators are sort of driven by what's going on with uh, Basel II, which is the big regulation coming out in Basel III, um, the ECB rules? I mean, how much flexibility does a regulator have to introduce their own risk methodology uh, which is a which is a subject very dear to my heart um, in terms of actually taking the risk envelope forward? Well, I think one of the things that has received too little attention over the past uh, few years has been not just the role of the regulators, but also the role of the risk management consultants that the banks deployed to have their uh, um, Basel II verified. So I think the verification process on the risk models and on the risk weightings uh, needs to be something that the central bank uh, and the regulator needs to become far more involved in Uh, because it is very clear that the banks under the previous Basel framework had far too much uh, freedom uh, to, if you like, manipulate uh, the risk models uh, to maximise their returns on equity. Uh, And I think that that's something that does need to be addressed going forward. It's been partly addressed, of course, by the overall leverage ratio that uh, has now been introduced uh, regardless of of risk weightings, although that, of course, also runs the risk of unintended consequences. But, but, you know, one sense is that some of the regulation that's come out of Europe, and not necessarily uh, Ireland itself, is definitely closing the door after the horse has bolted. Um, by the same token, new risks have emerged that come from new regulation. And, and one of those might be the result of a low interest rate environment and uh, a, a desire for liquidity, so that you've seen institutions piling into bonds. Uh, they're all holding sovereign debt. That's why the bond market has performed so well this year. And isn't that the next crisis waiting to happen that ostensibly the authorities have have been behind again? That's certainly a real risk. And there's even evidence of uh, banks going back into the high yield bond market for much lower yields than were previously achievable and for the for the debt protection metrics in all of these high yield bond corporate issuers deteriorating in terms of the leverage that they're allowed and so on so uh, there are all of these uh, consequences and I think it's going to take quite some time for regulators to get the overall framework right. Uh, I don't think there are any easy solutions to this uh, we're, we're, we're still not fully through uh, the, the issue of ensuring that the banks are adequately capitalised. Hopefully the stress tests will will be okay on that, but whether they'll be okay right across Europe is is a big question. And there's the other issue of um, how we cope with funding economic growth more broadly when the securitisation markets have closed, they're starting to reopen, but you have to ask yourself the question, 
is bundling up packages of mortgages and getting conflicted credit rating agencies to, to, to rate them and then getting financial institutions and uh, pension funds and charities and all the rest of it to buy them. Is that the way to get back to uh, sound banking? I don't think it is. Well, to be fair to the regulators, I think they are dealing with a massive overhang of, uh, of, of debt That's and it, it takes yep. years and years for that to, to unwind. Now, mm-hmm. well, we'll leave the regulator there and take a quick break, but coming up... The credit union enters the insurance market. Stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Bexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. You can tweet us with your comments at thecurrencynt or email thecurrency at newstalk.ie. Now, before the break, our panellists, lecturer of finance at DCU Michael Dowling and columnist and former banker Michael Murray were discussing the latest central bank's annual report and the role of the financial regulator. Now, moving on to the credit union, who have launched a new motor insurance product that is now available online to 2.9 million members. The new CoverU.ie policies are underwritten by AIG, with annual comprehensive cover starting at a baseline of €273. The Irish League of Credit Unions has recently launched an electronic payment option for their members and is due to offer debit cards at the start of next year. This new insurance product is yet another addition which will surely elevate the organisation's status in the Irish banking sector, but will it impact premiums in insurance markets? Well, uh, the premiums in for, for car insurance in particular, but in insurance markets generally, consumer insurance, uh, are actually very competitive. There are many players in the market. Uh, the intermediaries uh, have a wide source of uh, underwriters to, to go to. And... Uh, I don't actually think that there is a need uh, for yet another competitor in the market. Uh, But I think perhaps more importantly, I think that given the problems that the credit unions are facing uh, in their uh, risk business and their lending business, uh, that is the area that they should be focusing on, uh, putting that right, rather than devoting resources, both financial and human, uh, to building the regulatory framework, putting in the systems necessary to support this new business. I don't think it's necessary... Uh, and uh, I think that the um, I think that the uh, registrar of credit unions should come down on it. Now, the the central bank looked into uh, in detail at two hundred credit unions. It found that most of them were taking on too much risk, as as you've just said, which is which is interesting. Um, and they were criticising the union's governance, lending, operations, and risk management. Um, the credit union uh, started as a, as a unique Irish uh, entity uh, and, and it's moved towards uh, being a, a more commercial banking model. Michael Dowling, do you, do you think this is the right moment for credit unions to be doing this or does the central bank really have a point that uh, it may be a step too far? If you um, if you don't mind, I'd I'd love to go love to go back to just the generality of this product first of all, if 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 that's okay. Yeah, of course. It's yeah. um it's just uh, the way the story's put out is that it's introducing new competition into the market. It is introducing zero new competition into the market. Uh, it's not that they're offering a new product; they're reselling AIG's product. Uh, so you can buy the exact same product um, on AIG.ie as you can on CoverU.ie. Uh, anyone can go to two websites and. 
you'll actually see the coveru.ie is just an AIG affiliate website. Uh, so you can buy the exact same products. I, I would strongly encourage anyone who's thinking about getting insurance through this uh, to type in the exact same uh, numbers into both of the websites and uh, and see if you see any price difference. Uh, because I, I actually did that earlier today uh, for annual travel insurance uh, for someone of my age. Uh, so you end up with a product, uh, both of which uh, is uh, a, an AIG product. And for uh, AIG, the price was €24 Euro for one year. And for the exact same product from CoverU.ie, the credit union uh, offering, uh, €25.21. Uh, so all they're getting is a little premium for offering the exact same product that already exists in the market. Well, uh, that, that then begs the question that I was asking is, look, if they're getting if they're getting €1.21, and I haven't verified the number, but uh, you oh, know, you've looked today, if they're getting €1.21 for the benefit of doing this, they're taking on a whole host of regulatory issues unless they've um, subcontracted those to AIG as well. So hasn't the risk gone up whilst their potential to make money not significantly been enhanced? Yeah, I mean, I mean, essentially, they'll get a little commission for selling it on. They're, they're not per se taking risks, but the, the real risk is, uh, as you're saying, um, uh, the credit unions are in a mess. An exact quote from the Central Bank report uh, of uh, 200 credit unions that they investigated uh, said, regrettably, we found the majority of credit unions we engaged with needed to make significant improvements to the risk management. So why are they spending time in their board meetings going, oh, let's try and sell AIG's insurance? Why are they not trying to fix this problem? And even more strategically, the key skill that credit unions have is brilliant local knowledge. How does, how does selling an American company's insurance product actually uh, help them build on that local expertise, uh, actually helping the local communities. How how they started, as you as you as you pointed out. Uh, so I, I think the, I mean, it's it's an indication of uh, hubris within the organisation that they're not focusing on fixing their problems, and actually they're not even trying to move the organisation, uh, the the collective of credit unions in in a direction of the core strengths. Well, I think that's a really interesting point that's just been made. And Michael, if you, you Michael Murray, if you'd like to to add to that, but one senses that that the risk culture uh, is is inadequate, that the uh, the desire to move forwards is in the wrong direction, and this is a case where the regulator seems to be moving ahead, of, you know, quite quickly in terms of of questioning whether whether the industry as a whole should be moving in that direction. Yes, and it makes no uh, economic sense at all based on the the uh, premium that Michael has mentioned. Uh, for them to be investing in the technology and in the uh, regulatory compliance requirements that are needed uh, to introduce this product. It, it is, as he says, uh, a good example of hubris in the organisation and I think that the regulator needs to clamp down on this uh, because there are problems in the credit unions. They're very real problems. Uh, we don't want the taxpayer having to pick these up uh, in the same way as they had to pick the banks up. Admittedly, the scale, because the credit unions' uh, assets, risk assets are, are are much smaller, but uh, nonetheless, proportionately, it could be quite serious uh, for the for the credit union sector, and therefore, that's what they should be focused on, and leave the existing brokering network, which is highly competitive across the country, uh, handle car insurance for Irish consumers. Well, that's all we have time for uh, from our panel this week. My thanks to lecturer of finance at DCU, Michael Dowling, and columnist and former banker Michael Murray for joining us in this uh, this evening's panel. Now, coming up. Up after the break, a leading European economist with a no-holds-barred review of Europe's economic recovery. Please stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. 
brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services, protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. Don't forget to tweet us with your comments at The Currency NT or email us thecurrency at newstalk.ie. It was the collapse of Lehman's investment bank in the U.S. back in 2008 that lifted the lid on a global credit bubble which inevitably led to a domino effect of sovereign debt, bailouts and a political upheaval not seen since the Great Wall Street crash. Six years on is Europe's economic recovery back on track. Former economic advisor to the President of the European Commission and author of European Spring, Why Our Economies and Politics Are in a Mess and How to Put Them Right, Philippe Legrand joins me now. Philippe, can you tell us a little bit about your time in the European Commission uh, and the policies you spearheaded at that time? Sure. Um, Well, the appointment came out of the blue. Uh, Back in 2010, um, President Barroso was unhappy with the advice he was getting from commission officials because they failed to predict the crisis and they seemed incapable of tackling it. And he saw me on television and, you know, he offered me a job. Um, And it was an opportunity to try and make a difference um, to uh, the Eurozone crisis. And so uh, I accepted. Um, I saw lots of things from the inside, um, lots of policy mistakes being made, fought for a different course of action, few victories here and there, but broadly speaking, um, I, I think that the direction that the Eurozone has taken um, has been disastrous. And, and looking back, what were the, the most alarming moments uh, for you during that, during that time? Well, I mean, several of the mistakes were made um, before my joining. Uh, the bailout of uh, Greece instead of restructuring uh, its debt, um, the, the uh, forcing Ireland um, to take on the debts of its banks and threatening to force it out of the Eurozone, uh, if it didn't. Um, beyond that, the lurch into austerity, uh, the failure to deal uh, with the banking crisis, uh, and this very dangerous uh, centralization of fiscal powers in Brussels through the new fiscal straight tracker that exists. And in terms of Ireland's situation, austerity has been the official policy to date for the country's economic recovery. Uh, in your book, European Spring, you claim um, austerity is all pain and no gain. What alternatives did Ireland have in terms of, of policy over the last six years? And would, are you more on the Austrian sort of uh, side of economics in terms of the Austrian school of economics in terms of, of, of wanting things to actually come to a, to a head rather than papering over the cracks? Well, I think, uh, first of all, had Ireland not been forced to take on uh, 64 billion uh, euros worth of uh, bank debt, uh, the need for austerity would have been um, much less. Uh, secondly, um, had the problems in the banking sector been dealt with more quickly, uh, with credit restored, the growth would have been stronger and also there would have been a need um, for less austerity. Um, but that sort, of, that, that sort of implies that Ireland perhaps should have just let the banks go, uh, you know, uh, not bailed out any of the, the bondholders or, the, or the, well, the shareholders weren't bailed out effectively, but that they should have just let the thing go, which would have, you know, resulted in a banking collapse and, and potentially much greater pain over the rest of Europe. Was that a, was that a viable alternative? Well, uh, Ireland, I mean, sorry, Iceland uh, let its banks go. Uh, and it did not have the disastrous consequences uh, that people say. Now, clearly, at the time, uh, the, the Irish government was staring down the barrel of a gun. The ECB was threatening to force, in effect, Ireland out of the Eurozone. Personally, I don't think the ECB would have gone forward with that threat. Um, but, you know, clearly Ireland uh, blinked first. 
Now, one senses in Europe that there is a, a very real paralysis of policy, uh, that the ECB is, uh, is, is fighting with one arm behind its back, waiting for the next crisis to happen before it can move, that Germany has a sort of uh, a historic memory of the Weimar Republic and inflation, and France wants to go in a much more sort of uh, socialistic um, uh, route than the rest of Europe. This is all happening at a time when Europe is on the verge of uh, outright deflation. What sort of suggestions does your book come up with, or do you come up with, to, to find their way through that minefield of risks? Well, I think the good news, obviously, is that Ireland has emerged from uh, its EUMF program, uh, that markets at the moment are willing to lend uh, to Ireland at record low rates, uh, and the government has had the good sense uh, to pre-fund a lot of its borrowing needs. At the same time, you know, real risks remain. The banking uh, system is not fixed. Uh, public debt uh, remains uh, ex- ex- extremely high, and the future part of that uh, is fragile. Uh, and economic growth um, remains uh, very weak. So there are still uh, big risks um, remaining. Uh, and I think what we need to do uh, is tackle the problems in the banking system, uh, tackle the problems in the private sector debt. You know, how many Irish house homeowners are in arrears on their mortgages? Um, that that should need, needs to be dealt with. Uh, invest more uh, and then focus reforms on boosting productivity. Now, m- moving to uh, just across the water from here, Britain, um, Brexit or Britain's exit from the Eurozone um, appears to be a- an increasing possibility. We have uh, really very, very good poll or pre-poll results for um, for uh, UKIP, the uh, UK Independence Party. Uh, Cameron seems to be slightly in disarray re- with regard to his policy towards Europe. First of all, what sort of chances do you think there are of, of a Brexit? Is it just an empty threat or or political spin within the House of Commons? I think it's likely that Britain will stay in the European Union, but I think it's a possibility uh, that it will leave. I mean, obviously, it depends on who wins um, the next election in 2015. Uh, If the Tories win, then there'll be a referendum. I think it partly depends on the future of the Eurozone, as in, does the recovery take hold? Does the Eurozone look like a more attractive place that you want to have close links with? Or does it continue to look like a disaster zone? It partly depends on politics within Britain. Um, How do the various parties respond to the threat from UKIP? Can they put forward a positive case for staying uh, in the European Union? Um, And it partly depends also, obviously, on the the referendum uh, in in Scotland um, uh, later this year. One senses that the the whole cohesion in Europe has come from protecting the euro um, at the expense of actually moving forward on any other sort of... uh, political or economic consolidation. What do you see as the problems going forward uh, f- for the Eurozone? A lot of Eurozone politicians are saying the problem is over. Um, how do you view that? Well, the problem clearly isn't over for the reasons I mentioned uh, earlier in the interview. Um, I think there is a political crisis here. You know, support for the European Union uh, is at an all-time low. Uh, in the upcoming elections, uh, extremist parties are likely to do uh, extremely well. Um, and there are various reasons for them. Well, clearly, partly it's because of the crisis. I also think that the centralization of fiscal powers is, is, is very dangerous because you've seen in election after election, um, the outgoing government is thrown out. And even before the incoming government um, has um, taken over, Oli Wren, the EU's fiscal enforcer, pops up on television saying, you must stick to the same policies uh, that voters have just rejected. And that means that voters go, well, hang on a minute, you know, we've just 
voted to change governments. We're told we have to stick to the same old policies. Well, if that's what the EU says, then we must be anti-EU. And I think that kind of system is not sustainable. So either you need to have to um, restore much greater fiscal flexibility at, at a national level, or you need to move to um, a Eurozone budget with its own tax raising um, and borrowing powers. This halfway house that we have here of centralized fiscal controls, I don't think is compatible with national democracy. Uh, well, well, one senses there has been, if one goes to France, if one goes elsewhere, there's definitely a rise of anti-EU sentiment. So how long can the EU Commission and, and Barroso and others, Olly Rohn in, in particular, hold the, hold the line that uh, centralisation of, of European powers is a good thing at the expense of uh, local country um, rules? Well, we have to hope that the European elections will be a wake-up call, um, that uh, people uh, in Brussels and in national capitals will realise uh, that the system needs to change, uh, and that when the new commission takes office uh, in November, um, uh, that it will put forward proposals uh, for change uh, along with national governments. Uh, one has to hope that, it, that, that that happens. If it doesn't, then you need to, a broad movement uh, um, for popular change to demand a different kind of Europe, a European spring of economic and political renewal. And with regard to that, I mean, uh, obviously one of the central components of European policy is the ECB. Now, its current strategy is to maintain interest rates. Inflation, uh, their inflation target is way above where current inflation is. Much of Europe appears to already be in a uh, cyclical downturn. A deflationary uh, trend seems to be developing. Um, what is your opinion regarding the ECB, their freedom to move and their current policy? I think clearly the ECB has a deflationary bias. If uh, inflation was uh, way above target, uh, they would be very, very proactive. Uh, and inflation is way below target, and they're sitting on their hands. I think secondly, uh, the ECB is just excessively uh, independent. I mean, not just in setting its own target, but even in deciding that if it doesn't meet its own target, it doesn't have to do anything. And thirdly, I think it's behaved outrageously uh, during this crisis, uh, whether it is uh, the way that it threatened Greece, the way that it threatened Ireland, the way that it even uh, threatened uh, Italy. Uh, in effect, it's behaved um, as the central bank of Germany and France or the central bank of banks in those countries uh, rather than uh, the central bank of all Eurozone citizens. Uh, and I think uh, the ECB needs to change too. Well, it's interesting because one's sort of seen uh, Europe's response to uh, Russia and the Ukraine in the same light, where they want to have a sort of centralised policy, but you end up having someone like uh, Putin being able to run circles around Europe uh, uh, in terms of uh, his policy towards Crimea and now towards uh, eastern Ukraine. Are we, because of this sort of paralysis in Europe, are we... Uh, headed for another crisis. Is another crisis looming, or do you feel we've actually escaped the worst? Well, I think clearly the threat from uh, Putin uh, in the Ukraine uh, is very great. I mean, it threatens the whole uh, post-war, um, post-Cold War order. And the Polish Prime Minister came up with a proposal that you know, we should create a single energy market and that we should negotiate uh, gas supplies uh, together with Russia. I think it's a great idea. Um, I think that we need to cooperate much more um, uh, in areas uh, of foreign policy uh, and so on. Uh, the problem is, obviously, is that the crisis has created divisions within Europe, exacerbated um, uh, old ones, and um, uh, it's even ever harder uh, to reach common positions, uh, even in areas where it would be beneficial.
And Philippe, when you look at the, the, the situation in the Ukraine and you look at the fragility of the European economic recovery, particularly when compared to the UK's and uh, the US's, which are not perfect by, by any means, but certainly are in the right direction, do you think the Ukraine is now posing a, a real threat to a European recovery in, in, uh, in economic terms? I think certainly, I mean, Russia is already suffering a hell of a lot. Uh, they're in recession uh, as a result. Uh, investment in neighboring countries is likely um, uh, to, to be chilled by the threat of instability. Obviously, um, so far there hasn't been a reaction in terms of either gas or the oil price, um, but a worsening of the crisis um, uh, could uh, tip things in the wrong direction. Uh, so, so far... Uh, I think it's having a limited impact, but if it got worse, I think it, it could obviously have a, a much more severe one. And certainly the news that we're seeing over the last couple of days is that uh, the Ukraine is, it looks as if it's on the, uh, the edge of a civil war and, and, and uh, that situation doesn't look like it's going to improve anytime soon. Now, Philippe, if I was to invite you to become the uh, a political advisor to the T-shirt here, Ender Kenny, what would your, what would your uh, mandate uh, cover in terms of uh, what you'd be recommending? Well, I think that job should go to an Irish person. Uh, but insofar as um, I was asked as an external advisor um, uh, to do that, I would say that Ireland should play um, hardball uh, with its EU partners. It was treated disgracefully, and it deserves debt relief for uh, the $64 billion of bank debt that it was forced uh, to take on. Uh, at the same time, I think that you know, Ireland has a lot of promise, uh, a, a much younger population than most places in Europe, uh, it's shown itself to be very open uh, to immigration in the, in the boom years. Uh, it's finally getting to grips with its financial system. What it needs to do is become, you know, nurture more innovative and entrepreneurial companies uh, so that it isn't so reliant uh, on foreign ones. But otherwise, you know, I think if you can deal with the debt problems, you can deal with the financial problems, uh, Ireland has a bright future. And finally, Philip, you'll be in uh, Trinity College this Tuesday, uh, 6th of May at 6pm for the launch of uh, European Spring, Why Our Economies and Politics Are in a Mess and How to Put Them Right. Uh, can anyone come along to that, uh, to that meeting? Yes, they can. It's 6pm on Tuesday at the Long Room Trinity College. Philippe Legrand, former economic advisor to the President of the European Commission and author of European Spring, Why Our Economies and Politics Are in a Mess and How to Put Them Right. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on The Currency. After the break, our international markets overview, so please stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Bexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency. Now, as always, it's time for our international markets update. We're joined now by Owen Callan, fixed income dealer at uh, Danske Bank Markets. Uh, also a man with a very eclectic view of uh, financial uh, markets around the world. Thanks for joining us, Owen. No um, problem, Nick. If you look at the year-to-date performance of global stock markets, I, I think the most surprising thing is that they've done absolutely nothing nothing. Uh, most markets are up or, up or down 1% or 2%. Um, I think that's one thing that most market observers would not have predicted at the start of the year. What do you think is going on? Um, I think you're right. I think that the lack of volatility, uh, at least at an outright level, in terms of where we are year to date, um, has been uh, remarkably low. 
Uh, and uh, as you said, I think if we'd be predicting one thing at the start of the year, it wouldn't have been that we'd be kind of, as you say, flat uh, at this point. I think most people would have said we'd be up another 10%, the rally would continue, or we'd be down 10%, and then we would have given back a lot of the big gains made over the last few years. I think, I suppose, we have uh, some central banks like the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England to a certain extent starting to shift gear, starting to maybe look at removing the uh, accommodation and the stimulus that they provided in the last years, and that's obviously a negative from the market's point of view. But at the same time, we're having relatively good data, uh, albeit it's somewhat mixed. It's maybe two steps forward, one step back in the way it's coming out. But we're having a genuine uh, recovery occur in most of the developed markets, most of the advanced economies in the world. Uh, so that's encouraging. Uh, and then I suppose maybe the last part that we're throwing in the mix is obviously emerging markets, whether for political or economic reasons, are going through uh, quite a bit of flux at the moment for various reasons. Um, and, and, and for uh, for, for so some worrying reasons and some maybe that are being overplayed. But we're, we're having these three things intertwine um, and, and, and mix in. And it, you know, I think the markets are trying to get a grasp of where we go next, whether we do take another step up or whether we do eventually get back some of these gains. But the market hasn't been able to make that definitive view yet. And I think it'll still be some months before it's able to. Um, but at the moment, the markets are assuming that if there is any major problem, central banks can put their foot back on the pedal, uh, but that they reduce uh, that stimulus bit by bit over the coming year. And, and, and that the general uh, recovery we're seeing in, in, in markets uh, continues, uh, albeit with small little hiccups and bumps along the way. Now, uh, I suppose on the flip side of that, global bond markets have just put in the the best four months performance on record uh, for a financial year, um, where bond market observers, uh, as I remember at the beginning of the year, were forecasting a bubble and a potential collapse. So um, by the same token, why, why has everyone got the bond market so wrong? Um, it's true. It's, it's the biggest one that people have called wrong. I think people have maybe got the stock market slightly wrong, but they've got the bond market uh, predictions completely wrong. I suppose we didn't expect inflation to be as low as, as, it is, as it is in Europe, and therefore we didn't expect the ECB to have to be potentially looking at quantitative easing at some stage uh, over 2014. Um, at the same stage, uh, at the same time, in the US, you obviously had a very poor uh, growth rate, a very poor kind of uh, output of economic activity in the US in the first quarter, mainly due to uh, weather conditions. So people are trying to figure out how temporary um, that issue is. You know, it, it's not a worrying long-term issue. It's not like banks are, are, are unwilling to lend or that, you know, the, the growth potential isn't there. It's really just, you know, we've had to wait a few months for, for, for the growth to, to re-engage once we get through this kind of weather situation. Um, and, and I suppose that that's really been the issue is, is that everyone's positioned for a bond market sell-off and then the weather and the, and the ECB and the inflation issue in Europe appeared and everyone's been caught the wrong way. And that's why we've had a probably exaggerated move lower in terms of yields and, and I'd say higher in terms of... Uh, bond market returns. Um, so again, it's probably something which later in the year reverses uh, to a large degree, and that's when people are worried there still is this bubble there and that it will eventually unwind. It may not burst, but it will unwind to a certain degree. But until we really get that feeling that the US economy is starting to re-engage, until we get the, a better idea of what is going to take place in Europe in terms of ECB action, uh, I think for the moment people are, are happy to have their money in safe havens like, like German government funds, like US Treasuries, like UK gilts, um, and, and at the same time, though, still have some exposure to equity markets in case the rally continues. Now, um, one of the biggest risks, I suppose, for the bond market and global financial markets is if things do start to unwind, dealer inventories or the willingness of, of bond uh, dealers to actually trade seems to be at all-time lows. Now, uh, there was a report, I think, this week that the head of the uh, largest Danish uh, pension fund came out and said that they tried to sell what what appears to be quite a small amount, uh, 7 billion euro of German bunds last year with one of the major German banks, and that bank wouldn't make a market in that that size. Um, 
how bad are dealer inventories at the moment and what sort of impact could that have if uh, institutions start trying to get out? It, it is a worrying uh, problem. Um, I suppose you know, it's only when these very large funds try to do what, I suppose, in theory, is small relative to the total amount that's out there in the market, uh, but it's still a relatively sizable amount and try to do it in the year end as well. But there is this issue that the new regulations uh, will de- deter and prevent, in some cases, uh, banks from holding large amounts of inventory from using their balance sheet in the way they used to, to be able to provide secondary market liquidity for very safe things like German government bonds. Um, and that this is the kind of the second round effect, uh, the, the unintended the consequence, shall we say, of these of trying to make banks safer, of trying to get a better handle over what the real risks are on a bank balance sheet, um, and that you can actually end up with more volatility by trying to make the market safer, which is, you know, it's a bit of a, a paradox in some ways, and it's, a, it, it's certainly a conundrum that, that, that central banks and that regulators are trying to solve at the moment, trying to drip these new regulations in, but I suppose everyone knows who we're going to get to eventually. Uh, but things like the bank stress test, things like the AQR being conducted by the ECB at the moment, do make banks very reluctant to take on big positions, even if it's in relatively safe assets. And, and that's a new thing that we haven't had to experience before. Before, it was always you wouldn't take on big positions in risky assets, and that obviously makes a lot of sense. But you're always able to do whatever you want to with the, with the safe stuff, with German government funds and US treasuries. That's changing. Uh, they're trying to get banks smaller, trying to make sure that banks are, are no longer as much of a systemic risk potentially at times of uh, at times of, of crisis, no. um, and it's going to provide a problem for the big pension funds to be able to change out in and out of different markets in a very easy manner and without uh, additional cost. So it's something I think they're looking at, but this is the first sign that the industry is now, you know, the pension industry is saying, "Listen, this needs to be figured out. We don't want this to occur too often." Well, I think that's you know we had a piece on uh, on regulators earlier today and their and their role and uh, how important it is going forward. But it strikes me that if they're trying to make banks safe at the expense of uh, pension funds and insurance companies, that's a really serious unintended consequence because at the moment, insurance companies, pension funds around Europe and around the world are just chock full of sovereign debt. If they can't unload that um, in, a, in a reasonable manner, um, then it's going to fall back on, on, the, on the lap of central banks and that could be the, the genesis of the next crisis. Absolutely. I think as well, if nothing else, this produces more costs for pension funds, which ultimately end up uh, at the end user, people like me and you in our pension fund. The returns won't be as good. The management fees will be bigger. The trading costs will be bigger. So this is, you know, the problem. And, and you know, you might say, you know, well, somebody has to make the money somewhere, but often this gets lost in the ether to a certain extent. So I think central banks, they do understand, regulators do understand that this is an issue. Possibly this is the first time that's been brought to their attention that a big pension fund was unable to do uh, a deal that size, you know, in a kind of efficient manner. Um, but it, but it, it's a problem, and I suppose it's how do you solve the problems of big banks? How do you make them safer, but at the same time make sure that they can provide the services and the products that ultimately are good for for pension funds and for you know end users uh, like savers? Uh, it's not something that's going to be solved. I think this year it's not something that's going to be solved necessarily in the next few years. But bit by bit, we have to find a way of making sure that banks don't hold too much of these bonds, but at the same time can hold enough to provide that secondary market liquidity for the larger funds that are in and out of the market quite a bit, especially at a time when as you said, there could be a bond bubble right now, and people want to know that they can sell these bonds in relatively large size before the market moves against them. And obviously, this would be a kind of worrying sign they can't do that. And you know, from your experience of bond markets, is the Fed the Fed, as you as you know, just reduced its uh, its uh, QE program by another ten billion to forty five billion a month of bond purchases uh, last week on the back of poor Q1 GDP figures. Are the Fed and other central banks in danger of actually sparking off that, that, that uh, bond sell-off themselves by their actions? Uh, it's certainly a risk. Uh, 
and it, it's obviously certainly something that we saw uh, in the second half of last year when there was a big sell-off in the U.S. Treasury market on this view that with the, with the Fed reducing down their QE and eventually ending it later this year, and that there wouldn't be that support, there wouldn't be that backstop buying all these bonds, and everyone's trying to get out ahead of that. Uh, as we then saw, as you said, with, with Q1 uh, data from the U.S. being pr- pretty poor, uh, 0.1% uh, growth in the first quarter, um, there is risk that maybe they're jumping the gun in terms of this. But uh, I suppose everyone has just accepted or has taken the view that it was a weather-related issue in the U.S. in, in the first quarter that the underlying fundamental growth is will be stronger in Q2 and certainly in the second half of the year. And therefore, the Fed is still on the right track in terms of reducing down their, their QE and reducing down the amount of bonds they're buying at this kind of gradual pace is tapering uh, that, that's taking place. Uh, this week, we did get a good sign that the U.S. jobs market is improving slightly. Unemployment data 6.3%, 288,000 jobs uh, created uh, in April. Uh, at the same time, there are a lot of people are exiting the labor market. So clearly, the U.S., there's some good signs, but there's also some worrying signs that maybe people are, are becoming deterred from entering the job market at all because there isn't the good jobs out there. The earnings aren't uh, you know, high enough to encourage people to try and take on, on, on new jobs. So certainly the Fed needs to be mindful that the data is mixed and, uh, and while encouraging, it still has some fragility there. Um, but I think the, the QE tapering will continue. I think they will exit the QE altogether um, by, by, by the end of the summer, uh, provided, as I said, that the, the second quarter data is, is more consistent with a, with a proper recovery. Well, Owen, thank you very much. I think you've just demonstrated that you've got to know when to hold them, you've got to know when to fold them. And uh, that was Owen Callan, fixed income dealer at Danske Bank Markets. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, that is all for this week's show, and indeed for this series of The Currency. My Thanks to all who contributed over the last 10 weeks, to our panellists, our experts, and as well to producer Aoife Gillivan. I hope you have enjoyed the show, that we've brought the global markets and business issues that matter to your attention. Until next time, from me, Nick Bullman, take care and farewell.